take your Bibles please and turn to 1 Kings in chapter 18. We're going to read the first 24 verses. This is a long chapter. There's a part of me which would like to have preached one sermon from the entire chapter, but I believe it is too long and there are too many important things for us to learn. And as I don't want to keep you here for two or three hours, I decided I would break it up. You'll be glad to hear. But let's read from verses 1 to 24. It came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab, and there was a severe famine in Samaria. And Ahab had called Obadiah, who was in charge of his house. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, for so it was, while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and hidden them, 50 to a cave, and had fed them with bread and water. And Ahab had said to Obadiah, Go into the land, to all the springs of water, and to all the brooks. Perhaps we may find grass to keep the horses and mules alive, so that we will not have to kill any livestock. So they divided the land between them to explore it. Ahab went one way by himself, and Obadiah went another way by himself. As Obadiah was on his way, suddenly Elijah met him. And he recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is that you, my lord, Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go, tell your master, Elijah is here. So he said, How have I sinned that you are delivering your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to hunt for you. And when they said, he is not here, he took an oath from the kingdom or nation that they could not find you. And now you say, go tell your master, Elijah is here. And it shall come to pass, as soon as I am gone from you, that the Spirit of the Lord will carry you to a place I do not know. So when I go and tell Ahab, and he cannot find you, he will kill me. But I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Was it not reported to my Lord what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid one hundred men of the Lord's prophets, fifty to a cave, and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your master, Elijah is here. He will kill me. Then Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely present myself to him today. So, Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. 
Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him, Not a word. And Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore, let them give us two bulls, and let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we plead that you will come to our aid by the very same Spirit who inspired these words of Holy Scripture and give us a clear understanding and instruct us in the way of Christ afresh this night. Grant us hearing ears that we might hear what the Spirit says to his church. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. That was the challenge that Elijah gave to Ahab and the nation of Israel. But we read there in verse 21, the people answered him, not a word. They were not convinced. You will recall that Ahab had married Jezebel. And she was a devotee of Baal worship. And then, for her sake, and instigated no doubt by her, he had engaged in a major building program in Jerusalem and had built an altar for Baal and a temple for Baal in that place, Samaria. He went on in that way. The death of Hiel's two sons, his two boys, made no impact upon him or upon the nation. Ahab seems impervious to the truth of God's word. The dramatic words of Elijah saying that there will be no rain, no dew, except at my word, again seem to have made no real effect upon Ahab. The fact is that Elijah's words had come true. There was a severe famine, we read in chapter 18 and verse 2. And when a prophet's words come true, that is a real indication that you have a true prophet of the Lord among you. But it is all like water off a duck's back as far as Ahab is concerned. And he spends a lot of his time and energy now trying 
to hunt out Elijah and capture him and presumably remove him in the same way that Jezebel was removing many of the prophets of the Lord. Baal then, despite the famine, is still recognised and still served and worshipped. Ahab and Israel have gone on in their sinful, evil ways. And unless God powerfully intervenes in judgment and in grace, there will be no change in Ahab or in Israel. And that is precisely what God does. He intervenes in a dramatic manner. He asserts his divine lordship. Not only against Ahab, but against Baal and all that Baal stands for. He is not dumb like the idols. He is an active, speaking, living God. And he acts. And chapter 18 is about what he does. It's his initiative. He is the one who speaks. He is the one who confronts Baal. He is the one who vindicates his own name. And that is what this chapter is about. Baal is confronted and the Lord God of Israel is vindicated. But how does he do it? How does he go about it? We read in chapter 18 and verse 1 that he speaks again to Elijah after many days. Three years at least have passed. And he says to him, go, present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. God will send rain, but he will only send rain after Baal has been totally discredited and shown to be a useless, valueless idol. So before we climb with Elijah to Mount Carmel, we want to look at these, the first part of this chapter and see the way in which God works. And there are three things I want to set out before you this evening. First of all, how he raises up a faithful servant in Samaria, Obadiah. Then secondly, I want us to consider how he gives exceptional boldness to a man of God, Elijah. And then, thirdly, how he renders an idolatrous king powerless, Ahab. First of all then, how does God work? By raising up a faithful servant in Samaria. Now up to this point, all our attention has been on Elijah and Elijah has been hidden away for three plus years, following that dramatic prophecy in chapter 17 and verse 1. Now the Lord has spoken again. It is time to act. It is time for Elijah to go once again to Ahab. But Elijah is not going to walk in through the city gates of Samaria and put his head into the lion's den. That would be folly. That would be unwise. But God has a servant in Samaria, in Ahab's household, a man called Obadiah. 
Now Obadiah is sometimes presented as a half-hearted man, a man who compromised, one who served two masters. And I believe that that is a mistaken and rather ungenerous interpretation of this man. The narrator takes us back to what has been happening, some of the events that have been happening in Samaria while God has been hiding Elijah away. Things related to the famine and things related to what Ahab and Obadiah have been doing and also what Jezebel has been doing. She has been busy. She has been massacring the prophets of the Lord. Verse 4. Where does Obadiah fit in? Well, Obadiah is Ahab's top civil servant. He is in charge of the royal household. He's not a man then of ordinary talents. He is a trusted servant of an unrighteous man, albeit. And you can see that quite clearly in verses 5 and 6. The land is divided between Ahab on the one hand and Obadiah on the other. Obadiah, you go this way, I'm going that way. Let's go and see if we can find some grass for the horses and for the mules before we have to, to, have to kill them because there's no pasture for them. But the most important thing about Obadiah is told in verses 3 and 4. Ahab has called Obadiah who was in charge of his house. And then you have that little bit in brackets. But it doesn't mean to say it's unimportant. We are told then, not only that Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord, but we are told that Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. Feared the Lord greatly. He was not just a God-fearing man. He was a man who feared God to an extraordinary degree. And here is the proof of it. When Jezebel began to massacre the prophets of the Lord, this man, even though he was the top man in Ahab's household, he put his own life at risk, let alone his career, and consistent with his fear of God, he did not fear Jezebel as she pursued her policy of liquidation. He hid 100 men. That's a lot of men. 50 to a cave. And not just for one night and for one day, but consistently while Jezebel sought them and ensured, probably out of his own pocket, because he would have been a wealthy man employed in Ahab's household, out of his own pocket, he fed them and made sure they had bread and water. How long for? We are not told. But it was not something that was done in a day or even a week. The implying thing is that he continued to do this. Now that would have been an expensive thing to do. A hundred people. And he sustained them. He made sure that they were taken care of. That was a very risky business. But this man so feared God and had no time for Jezebel's policy that he was willing to use his wealth and his power and his position for others who feared God along with him. 
There then you see his sympathies. His sympathies are not with Ahab and with Jezebel. They are with those who fear God. And he, we are told, was one who had feared the Lord from his youth. In verse 12. He was a man of long standing profession of faith and trust and confidence in the God of Israel. Now I would suggest to you that that is hardly the action of someone who is a cowardly compromiser. In fact, think about it. By his faithfulness, he actually preserves more lives than the Lord did by his great miracles in sending the ravens and in supplying the widow of Zarephath with her flour and her oil. That was to preserve the life of one man, Elijah, a key man. Obadiah is used to guard and protect the life of a hundred men. And such is this man. He is a faithful servant. He did not put himself first. He was a servant of the Lord before he was a servant of Ahab and Jezebel. Now you might say, how can a man of God serve in that capacity for such a wicked regime? Well, God put him there. We can say that for certain. God put him there. This was a man who had feared God from his youth. And he was God's chosen servant and God put him there. If God put him there for no other reason than to save the life of a hundred men, that would be enough. But God put him there and he served God there. Like Joseph served God in Potiphar's household. Like Daniel served God with his three friends in the kingdom of Babylon. There were Christians in Caesar's household. We are told in Philippians. There are those who serve the Lord and those for whom they work are far from righteous men and women. How then is he labelled half-hearted and a coward? It's usually because when he met Elijah and Elijah says, go and tell your master that I am here and I want to speak to him, he protests. He's afraid. Ahab will kill me. He says that three times. He's pretty certain in his own mind that is what is going to happen to him. But verses 11 and 12 tell us how Obadiah sees the situation. This man sees Ahab in a way that no one else does. This man works for him. This man lives at close quarters. He is a trusted servant. He knows the innermost workings of this man's heart and his mind. He knows how he will respond. This is how Obadiah sees the situation. He doesn't know the things that Elijah knows. He's seen the rage of Ahab. He's seen all his efforts to find Elijah. And when he's been frustrated and gone to some of the other nations, having seen Elijah and puts them under oath to ensure that they are telling the truth. He's saying, look, Elijah, if I go to my master and say, you are here, the Spirit of the Lord may come and carry you off. You've been hidden. You've been off Ahab's radar screen for three years. 
How will I know that the Spirit of God will not take you and you'll disappear again? And then what am I going to do? I'll be at Ahab's mercy. He'll certainly kill me. If I can't make good my announcement, you are here. I'm finished. So can you appreciate, from his limited knowledge of the situation, his concerns are not entirely groundless. He doesn't understand what God is about to do. And I would suggest that his fears are understandable. I think if you can't identify with this man's fears, then you haven't read what this chapter is really saying. Elijah, though, does not argue with him. He doesn't even reason with him. Elijah insists, verse 15, as the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely present myself to him today. And that's enough for Obadiah. When Elijah says that, he obeys. Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. Verse 16. Elijah said, As the Lord God of hosts lives. And when Elijah uses that title. This is not just a title that indicates that the Lord is in, the Lord is the Lord of the heavenly hosts of angels. It includes that idea, but here is God who is a God of irresistible kingly power and authority. This is the one who has sent Elijah. This is the one who has spoken to Elijah. This is the one who has put Elijah under a command to go and speak to Ahab. And I believe that when Obadiah begins to realise what Elijah is really saying and who it is who has sent him, he has no obligation. He has, he has no, rather, no other option other than to go and to present himself to Ahab and say, Elijah is here. And there is an important lesson for us to learn from this man, Obadiah. He is God's servant. Obadiah and Elijah are both God's servants. Both of them face very real dangers and difficulties, though they are different because of their different circumstances. But they are different men. And they serve God in different spheres and in different circumstances. There are two things you can see with regard to Obadiah. First of all, we learn from Obadiah that you can serve God faithfully even in the midst of great wickedness. Even working for evil people. There was opportunity which he seized with both hands for doing great good. And then secondly, you can serve God faithfully without being an Elijah. It would be very easy for us to put the prophet up here on a pedestal and say, we've all got to be exactly like Elijah. 
Well, Obadiah wasn't like Elijah, but Obadiah served God faithfully in his circumstances. Elijah served God faithfully in his, we'll come to him in a moment. Obadiah, you see, is not called to confront Ahab as God's prophet. He plays no part in the Mount Carmel events. He is not the man for that moment, but he is the man to serve God faithfully and to protect and preserve the life of those 100 prophets in Samaria. But he's not the man to go and confront Ahab and stand on Mount Carmel up against nearly a thousand false prophets. The Bible does not tell us we have to serve God in the same way as Elijah did. Neither does it tell us that we have to serve God and suffer the same kind of things that the Apostle Paul did. Faithfulness to God comes in many different shapes and sizes. All of God's people are called to fear Him, to obey Him, to do good works, to live holy lives. But we have different gifts, we have different abilities, we have different personalities. And with those gifts and abilities and particular personalities, we are called to serve him where he has placed us. Elijah is not in the household of Ahab. Obadiah is, and that is where he is called to serve God in the midst of much wickedness. Some of you are and are becoming fathers and mothers to young children who over the next 20 years or so will be your charge and responsibility. And for some of you, your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God and the cause of Christ over the next 15, 20 years is to devote yourself to being a faithful father and a faithful mother to your children. To raise your children for God. That is what God has called you to be and to do. And that will take a great deal of your prayers, a great deal of your love, both love for God and love for your children. It will take a great deal of your emotional and spiritual and physical energy. But you are serving God. And that is where God has put you and that is what God has made you. For others of you, it may be that God has put you in a position where you are called upon to live the life of a consistent Christian man or woman before those with whom you work day in and day out. And you are called to be a witness. You are called to be a testimony to those people in your place of work and to maintain your integrity and to maintain your fear of God in the midst of much ungodliness. And that may be what you are called to do and to be. You may be an Obadiah in the place where you work. I would suggest to you that to be a consistent Christian father or mother and to be a consistent Christian in your place of work over many years takes great measures of grace from the Spirit of God. There's no small thing to live a consistent Christian life 
in this world. It is no small thing to bring your children up in the fear of the Lord. And that may be your greatest single contribution. There may be other things that you might do. But I'm giving those sorts of things as an example. There are many different ways to serve God. Obadiah gives us another, as it were, example of the spectrum of Christian service. Well, that was Obadiah. God raises up this man, a faithful servant in Samaria. Well, now, secondly, let's look now at Elijah. Having said that we don't have to be like Elijah in that sense to serve God, nevertheless we need to see how God used him, how God works by giving exceptional boldness to Elijah. It is courage of one kind to risk life and limb to hide a hundred prophets, but that does not involve a face-to-face confrontation with the man who was doing more evil in God's eyes than any other king before him. It did not involve a face-to-face confrontation with nearly a thousand prophets. False prophets. One man against 850 prophets. It took a different man, different gifts, a different personality. And that is Elijah. Not Obadiah. Elijah. Elijah has received divine orders. Go and present yourself to Ahab. Chapter 18 and verse 1. Elijah does not question that. We've seen how his strength would have been, how his faith would have been strengthened as he was fed day by day by the ravens. And when the water brook dried up, he was moved on and the widow was used by God to supply Elijah's needs as well as her and her son's needs. And when her son died, Elijah was the man who raised him from the dead as he called upon God. Elijah does not let Obadiah's objections give him a reason for not carrying out the divine commandment. He does not let the fact that Jezebel has massacred some of these prophets, he does not let that deter him. He does not let the fact that for the past three years Ahab has searched out, sent out search parties to hunt him down, put them under oath, No, he has a word from God. Go present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the earth. He is an exceptionally bold man. He is in the same category as Daniel, as Nehemiah, as Moses and Aaron who stand before kings and the leaders of nations and bring the word of God to them. You remember Peter and John before the Sanhedrin where they were hauled up and they were told not any longer to speak the name of Christ and they said whether it is right for us to obey you or to obey God you judge but we know what we must do. We stand here and we must speak the word of Christ. There is a God given Spirit worked boldness. And here is a man who has an authority given to him by God. A man who has no hesitation in going. And a man who's now 
his physical and nervous energy it becomes focused. And all his adrenaline is going to flow. But he's not afraid of men. He's going to stand before Ahab and then he's going to stand on Mount Carmel and call upon the name of God to vindicate his name. There are two ways in which his boldness is displayed particularly. Firstly, the way in which he rebukes wicked Ahab. Verse 17. When Elijah saw Ahab, Ahab is the first to speak. Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And the reply is, and he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. When Ahab sees him, immediately he blames Elijah. You're the troubler of Israel. You're the reason why there's no rain and no dew. I'm not sure how well Ahab knew his Old Testament. But that term had been used of Achan. Achan had troubled Israel in the days of Joshua because in his covetousness he had taken some of those things that were forbidden when they had taken the city of Jericho. And the next time they went up to A, they were utterly defeated. And the reason was, Achan had sinned against the Lord. He had disobeyed and he was a troubler of Israel, who caused Israel to be defeated. But Elijah, before the words are scarcely out of Ahab's mouth, his answer is bold. The finger of accusation is pointed straight in the face of Ahab. It is not me who is the troubler of Israel. You and your father's house. Your father Omri and you, his son. You are the ones. You're the ones who have forsaken the commandments of the Lord. You are the ones who have followed the Baals. You are the ones who have broken God's commandments. You are the ones who disobey those commandments of God. You've taken other gods and you've built false images that are no gods. You've broken the covenant. You've broken the commands of God. Your sin has caused the famine. I am nothing to do with it in the sense that I am not the cause of it. You are. The blame is yours, Ahab. It's no wonder later on Ahab says, not with regard to Elijah, but with regard to another true prophet, Micaiah, I hate him because he never has anything good to say about me. He always speaks to my conscience and he troubles me. Well, Elijah was that kind of man. So he boldly rebukes wicked Ahab in the first place. And then secondly, his boldness is displayed in that he challenges the people of Israel themselves in verses 20 and 21. Now he has a whole host of men, not just Ahab, the king, but 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, and all the people are going to be summoned by Ahab. And when they are all summoned on Mount Carmel, we read in verse 20 and 21, that Elijah says to them, How long will you falter between two opinions? 
If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, follow him. And that bold challenge is met with a stony silence. Baal, remember, had the royal stamp of approval. Baal worship was the norm in Israel, established by Ahab, promoted by his wife Jezebel. Now when Elijah said, how long will you falter between two opinions, it is not easy, in fact, to understand the precise meaning of that phrase. Elijah is not saying you're neutral, one minute you're for Baal, one minute you're for the Lord. You can't sit on a fence, that's what the translation seems to be saying, but that is not, I don't think, what Elijah is really saying. It may be translated, how long will you hobble on two crutches? Because in verse 26, the same word that is translated faltering, is, uh, is translated leaping about the altar or limping about the altar. And it may then be that he is in fact having a go at them in a sarcastic kind of way and referring to Baal worship. Whatever the precise meaning of the word is, and I'm not going to go into all the various possibilities, it is quite clear what he is actually doing. This man is the mouthpiece of God. With all the authority of God behind him, with all the authority of God's laws and God's commandments and God's lordship of his exclusive claims, he is saying to Israel, if this God is truly the Lord, then serve him. Follow him. If Baal is God, then you must follow him. How long are you going to go on worshipping Baal who is no God? That's the essence of what he is saying. Who's responsible for this drought and for this famine? Is it Baal or is it the Lord God of Israel? Who is really God? Serve him. Worship him. And have done with all the others. It comes to us as it came to them with great force. This is no academic, theoretical matter. If the Lord is God, then he must be followed, he must be obeyed, and you submit willingly to him and to his word, his ways, his worship, and you have done with them. There's no room to negotiate. There's no drawing up terms of serving the Lord. He is Lord and his claims are total. And here is this man's boldness. As he first of all confronts Ahab with his sin. And then he confronts the nation of Israel with their sin. And urges them effectively to repent and to turn back to serve the living and true God. He is a true prophet, because that's what true prophets do. True prophets come, and they don't flatter you. True prophets come and call you back to serve God. They call you to repent of your particular sins. True prophets, we learn from the scriptures, are like true preachers. 
True preachers are to rebuke sin and to call for repentance and to turn people back to God. I read earlier this week of a very large church in Chicago that has become well known for being a seeker-sensitive church. And they have, as it were, sought to start again and to try and reach people with what they understand to be the gospel. But what they've done is they've toned down the gospel. They've changed the gospel. And they've got numbers. And now they're putting up their hands and saying, well, we have all these numbers, but we don't have any disciples of Christ. People come, and then they disappear. They're not to be found following after Christ. Why? Because the message they preach is not the gospel message. It leaves out the hard things. It leaves out sin. It leaves out repentance. It leaves out Christ and holiness of life. And you say, oh, well, we're not like that church. My friends, you can still have a true prophet and a true preacher. And you can be like the people of Israel and not heed the prophet the preacher who comes in the name of Christ. If I or another preacher, as I preach the word of God to you, rebuke you for pride, for unbelief, for selfishness, anger, impatience, uncleanness, envy, is it like water off a duck's back? Or does it produce the fruits of repentance and righteousness? It's very easy for us to be sermon hearers and sermon tasters. Provided the preacher doesn't move you out of your comfort zone and ruffle your feathers and say it's time for you to search your own hearts and your own consciences. It's time for you to go back to the cross of Christ and repent of your sins. Isn't that what Christ was saying in part to the churches in the book of Revelation? True, he could encourage them. But he also called them to repent of their specific sins. And that is what Elijah does. Elijah is a true prophet of the Lord. And true prophets come and they confront you boldly with your sin and call you back to heart loyalty to God and to serve him with an undivided loyalty of heart. That's Elijah. That's his boldness. That's the kind of man God raises up in order to accomplish his work. But there is a third and a last thing. A third way in which God works. And that is by rendering Ahab powerless to act against Elijah. 
He renders Ahab powerless. Now there is no specific comment. It is more an observation. But when you read through this chapter, Ahab hardly figures in this chapter at all in terms of someone who is doing anything. He is a powerless figure in verses 5 and 6. Because there he's been reduced to a personal search for food for his animals, his horses and his mules. Matthew Henry says, this man was at pains to seek grass, but he had no pains to seek God. He was interested in seeking after God. He had no care for his soul. He ought to have been concerned about the state of his nation. He ought to have been concerned about the curse and the wrath of God that was upon them. But he was powerless to do anything. You remember when David was chastened? When he counted the number of people in Israel? And when he was confronted with his sin? And when he realized what he had done, he humbled himself and cast himself upon God. Ahab doesn't move one muscle in order to serve God. And he's rendered powerless. He's a powerless figure because he's unable to do anything about the famine or the drought. All his building programs of Baal are a farce. Where is Baal? He is powerless. And he is powerless, particularly in the presence of God's prophet. Apart from verse 5, there is only one other time when he speaks in this chapter. And it is there in verse 17. And immediately he is silenced when Elijah reproves his sin and commands him to appear on Mount Carmel. And to call the nation of Baal and the prophets of Asherah from Jezebel's table. And Ahab does everything Elijah tells him to do. He's powerless. He has to do. He's almost compelled to do what Elijah tells him to do. This is the man he spent three years looking for. This is the man he's been trying to get his hands on for so long. He doesn't call upon his soldiers to seize him. He seems powerless and does as Elijah says. Elijah has come in the name of the Lord of hosts and God protects him and God emboldens him and God renders powerless his enemies. Ahab does not so much as lift his finger against Elijah. It's not until Ahab goes back and reports to Jezebel what has taken place on Mount Carmel that Jezebel's anger is aroused and Elijah's life is threatened. But at this point, Elijah is rendered powerless. Now make no mistake, this is a life and death situation. Obadiah knew it. Elijah knew it. He knew he was outnumbered. 850 to 1. A king and his wife Jezebel. Jezebel would have gladly added Elijah's blood to the blood of the prophets. But this is the Lord who is working. And the Lord hid his servant for three years. And then when his servant came out of hiding, he gave him such boldness and such protection that he was in a sense untouchable until he had completed 
his task. God fed him. He sent the ravens. He raised up the widow. He protected him until his work was done. Does God always preserve the life of his servants in that way? No. Not always. John the Baptist perished. Antipas perished in Smyrna. James was put to death with the sword by Herod and countless others. Does that mean that God somehow is not in control? No. But when God decides to act, and when God is going to display his power, when God is going to act against those who are his enemies, and he's going to vindicate his name, then his servants become bold and powerful, and those who are their enemies are silenced and powerless. Idols are nothing. Idols are powerless, and those who serve and worship them are made like them. So we read in the Psalms. And so God renders this man Elijah a powerful advocate of true worship and uses him to vindicate his name and to, per, and to, per, and to pursue then to prosecute the cause of truth and the true worship of God. When God judged Pharaoh and the Egyptians and their gods, there came a point when the magicians could no longer do the miracles that Moses and Aaron did. They were rendered powerless. And by the end of the plagues, the people were just glad to get rid of them. And, it, and Pharaoh was powerless. Nebuchadnezzar was reduced to a beast in the days of Daniel because he arrogantly assumed that he was the one who had established great Babylon. Herod, though he had taken the life of James, that was the end of his power because he was then rendered powerless. Peter escapes from the prison. And then Herod dies an awful death as a judgment upon him. One greater than Elijah is here. The Lord Jesus Christ who is holy and true. We read in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7 and we'll read the entire thing next week. God willing. We read of him who is there presented to that church as the one who opens the door and no one can shut it. One who shuts and no one can open it. That is our Saviour. And the whole message of the book of Revelation is that none of his enemies can stand against him in the day of God's power. Ultimately, the kingdom of Christ must triumph and will triumph. This was a day of God's power the day of Elijah it was not the final end that can only come when Jesus Christ returns in his glory he has supreme authority he has the keys of death and of Hades he can unlock the grave he can release the captives he has authority over entrance into the kingdom of God 
some will kill, some will destroy, some will blaspheme. But Christ is in control. And Christ will destroy all the idols of this world and all the kingdoms of this world. And we live in the midst of much wickedness. But this same Christ is with us. And it is vital for our faith in these dark days that we keep our eyes upon Christ and upon the authority that is his and the power that is his and the purpose that God is going to accomplish in his Son, Jesus Christ. It is invincible because Christ is invincible. After this event, Elijah is on the run and he wants to die. The man is totally exhausted. Christ is never like that. Christ has supreme power and never grows weary, never grows tired. He is almighty and all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth and it is in him that we trust. It is to him that we pray. And it is to him then that we live. And those who keep his word, those who keep his word, like Obadiah, like Elijah, they shall triumph. Let us then seek to serve him and serve him with an undivided loyalty as Elijah did. We cannot imitate perhaps his boldness, we cannot imitate the work that he actually did and accomplished. But this man served God with all his being. Let us imitate him in that regard. Let us serve Christ faithfully in our generation. Amen. Lord, we pray as we seek to serve you in this generation in which we live. We pray that you would grant to us loyal and obedient hearts that cheerfully do your will. We ask our God that you would give to us that measure of ability by your Spirit to serve you where you have placed us, to use the gifts and abilities that you've given us, the callings that are ours in order to serve Christ faithfully in this generation. Lord, we thank you that you do not place unreasonable demands upon us, expecting us to serve you in ways that are beyond our abilities. But Lord, we pray that we may be found faithful servants of Christ, who do your will, who do your bidding, and who do much good in the midst of so much wickedness. We ask it for our Saviour's glorious name, Amen. Amen.